Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 28. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are continuing this big build-up towards Dumbo, coming out in March. Um, we've been doing these these uh, animation into live-action remakes, because Disney is doing so many. And it's not just Dumbo. They have so many of these coming out this year. We mentioned it a few weeks ago. It seems to be the year of the remake. And this is the only series that has not one but two live-action remakes. It's the Alice series, uh, this being Alice Through the Looking Glass from 2016. It's the film we're going to talk about today. I don't know if you can really constitute this one as a remake, though, because it really has nothing to do with the original animated Alice in Wonderland. Right. It draws from the books, which there was, there were two books, but I feel like both the animated and, the li- and Tim Burton's live-action drew from both of them and they kind of crammed everything into each of those films so it's interesting to see what they pulled from the animation and from tim burton's live action kind of remake i think adaptation is a better word because he really didn't remake alice in wonderland and what they kind of made up as they went along with a new director in this film. Yes, I think Burton stayed on as a producer, but he did not actually direct this one. Um, we're going to jump right into it because I think I think we're going to have a lot to say about this one. Yeah. Uh, the film opens with Alice's cargo ship uh, under attack by pirates after a quote-unquote daring escape. They head back to London to hear that Hamish is the CEO of his father's company following his father's death. Now, Alice has been at sea for three years. We also see the return of the Caterpillar in butterfly form. Uh, Hamish tells Alice their company will no longer fund her projects, and he offers her a job within the company, and he tries to leverage her house against her to get her ship, because while she was away, her mother signed over their 10% of the company that they owned. The Caterpillar shows up and leads Alice through a mirror back to Wonderland to find out that the Hatter has fallen into a deep depression and is dying after finding a blue paper hat that he made for his father, reminding him of his family's death at the hands of the Jabberwocky, and only Alice can save him. Um, The Hatter tells Alice that he believes his family is alive and she must find them, but Alice doesn't believe him, and he throws her out of his home as his hair starts to turn gray. The White Queen tells Alice that she must use the Chronosphere and travel back in time to save the Hatter's family, but must be aware that if future selves see past selves, time will be destroyed. In other words, the the future you cannot see the past you. Otherwise, everything is thrown off in the space-time continuum. We meet Time, um, who not only controls time itself, but also life and death by moving people's quote-unquote watches from the land of the living to the land of the dead. After denying use of the chronosphere in order to protect time as we know it, we see that the Red Queen is now a love interest of the character named Time and is also in need of the chronosphere to go back in time to get even with her sister, but the sphere is stolen by Alice and Time goes after Alice to stop her before the grand clock breaks and Time stops forever. Alice meets the Hatter, who obviously doesn't know who she is at this point, because this interaction is actually before they met in reality, because let's not forget, she is time-traveling, and she tells him that he needs to find his family. The family is at the crowning of the Red Queen, um, and while his father is putting the crown on the Red Queen's head, the crown breaks, leading to the Red Queen's embarrassment, and she's still a princess at this point. It leads to her embarrassment. She gets overly angry, and her parents decide that her behavior makes her unfit to rule, and they will crown her younger sister instead, who ends up becoming the White Queen. In her anger, her head grows, and she promises revenge against the Hatter's family. 
The Hatter's father gets mad at the Hatter for laughing at the Red Queen, calls him a disappointment, which leads the Hatter um, to leave his home. He's had enough. He's taken off. Um, we learn that the Red Queen struck her head as a child, causing a change in her mentality. So Alice goes to stop that event from happening. And in turn, she thinks it's going to help save the Hatter's family. So as Alice travels back in time again, we see the Hatter as a child present his father with the aforementioned paper hat, followed by the White Queen eating the last of her mother's tarts, kicking the crumbs under her sister's bed, leading to the false accusation of the Red Queen um, eating these tarts, which causes the Red Queen to run from the palace in a fit of anger. Alice tries to stop the fall, but fails as we find out that history can't actually be altered. Uh, she sees the Hatter's father pocket the paper hat, sees a vision that their clocks have not been moved from the land of the living to the land of the dead, and she concludes that the family is alive. Right after this happens, Alice wakes up in an institution. Her mother tells her that Hamish found her unconscious, and they deem her hysterical. Alice escapes, take the, takes the chronosphere back to the day that the high tops are quote-unquote killed, and sees that they're instead captured by the Red Queen. Alice goes to tell the Hatter that his family is alive, but finds the White Queen, the Dormouse, the March Hare, the White Rabbit, grieving over a dying Hatter, who then comes back to life after Alice shows him that his family is alive and that she does, in fact, believe him when he says this. They go to the Queen's hideout to see that the High Tops are in the Red Queen's ant farm. The Red Queen gets the chronosphere from Alice, goes back in time to the day that her sister lied about the tarts, busts into the room to confront her much younger selves about the entire thing, causing her younger self to see her older self, time is destroyed, and everything starts to turn into stone. Alice and the Hatter take time's extra time machine back to that day, retrieve the chronosphere from the stoned Red Queen, travel back to present day to put the chronosphere back where it belongs to repair the grand clock. As the world turns to stone around them, Alice also turns into stone right before she can put the sphere back, uh, but she is so close that an electromagnetic force pulls the sphere back into place, repairing the clock, setting time back in motion, turning the universe and every living thing back to normal. The White Queen apologizes to the Red Queen, which is apparently all the Red Queen wanted. The White Queen gives a cake labeled Eat Me to the Hatter. He gives it to his family, who then in turn will eat it, and then they regain their normal size. Alice says goodbye to her friends forever, travels back through the mirror, tells her mother um, that she should sign the ship away and sign the company away to Hamish, but her mother then refuses. They decide to keep their ship, start their own cargo company, and they board their boat to go on their next adventure. Yeah, that's what this movie is about. I give you a lot of credit, though, because that did make sense even with all the time jumping. Right. Um, that was very well explained. Well, thank you. For those that haven't seen the movie. And I think there are a lot of people who have not seen this. Yeah, this movie was a box office bomb. I think, I want to say that it had a $170 million budget, made $245 million worldwide. But I know for a fact, it lost the studio $70 million. That's a huge loss. This movie was from 2016, so it's not like we even had a trips to the park that year where they could recoup. Yeah, sorry, Disney, but you were on your own on this one. Um, let's start at the very beginning of this movie. How does a studio that for the longest time hung its hat on pirate films have such a horrific pirate scene? Literally everything about it is terrible. The ship's... The costumes, it, it seems like such an afterthought to set up the movie this way. The reason why when I gave you guys the synopsis of the plot did I say quote unquote daring rescue was because for the sake of being respectful to surmising the whole thing, I didn't want to say a stupid escape <laughs> because that's what it was. They tip the ship sideways so that they can go through shallow water. 
And for whatever reason, the three other pirate ships watched them do this, but couldn't figure that plan out in time, and therefore they grounded their ships. And what I don't understand is Alice then goes, our work is done here, let's go home. Wasn't your work already done and you were already on your way home? Yeah. Once she actually gets back to London, we learn that she wasn't supposed to be abroad for that long. But I don't know. The the whole thing, and this is only like a three to five minute scene, just completely comes undone for me. Aside from the fact that aesthetically it looks terrible, it is a direct ripoff of Pirates of the Caribbean, which happened almost nine years prior, I believe. Right. We've seen this in At World's End, where they go to the end of the world, they have to literally flip the boat upside down, and then the water washes away, and they're on the other end of the world. So, all right, granted, the premise is a little bit different. You're still flipping a boat. We've still seen it before. And I think what bothers me the most about this is that, yes, we are establishing that Alice is now a stronger character. She's clever. She's captaining the ship in her father's absence because it was his ship. But you've completely lost the Alice character. And what makes her, you know, you've completely eliminated that curiouser and curiouser aspect of Alice. Even though she says it like twice in the first 10 minutes, curious curious no she's you're right she's very different I actually don't hate this version of her because I don't find her nearly as bland as she was in the first movie but you're right she does in spite of that she does lose what gives her that bit of charm and makes her really who she is right like completely taking the animated character out of it I do like the arc of this Alice from one movie to the next, because you're right, it gives her more substance. But this is not Alice. This is not the same girl that went down the rabbit hole at all. No, not not nearly. We find out that she had been out to China, which was like a big deal because I guess they hadn't had Chinese trade before with the English. Um, So when they go to this party, when we see Lord Hamish... Lord Hamish. Um, I can't believe that of all the characters you could bring back that he somehow made it into this one as well. I I, I don't know. He's even more insufferable in this one. I mean, in the first Alice, the purpose is so that, you know, she turns down the marriage proposal and where... They, they really use him as a springboard for the character of Alice to show that she's independent and she's not going to do as she's told. And she's going to break the tradition of just marrying the first man that makes you an offer. But somehow in this one, he's become even more insufferable since he teamed up with the Fidelity Fiduciary Bank. You have that note too, don't you? I, I, I don't know what it is for Disney's penchant with London mustache men. And they try to put one on him and it looks ridiculous. Like, you're right. He was he was really annoying in the first movie. But I sort of liken him to a Prince Valiant. Or, yes. or not Prince Valiant. A Prince Valium from Spaceballs. Yes. Where he's just yeah, yeah, yeah. so corny and blasé. But in this movie, he's obnoxious. He really, really is. And, you know, he tries to make a joke at Alice's expense and all the guys are like, rrr, 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 rrr. yeah, <laughs> a woman pirating a show. Mustaches. It was so stupid. Um, I just uh, what I couldn't understand either is they were so offended by what she was wearing. They were like, what is this? When she came back wearing like kind of traditional Chinese garb, but because they were really playing off of the whimsy that was Burton's Alice movie, it looks like something she stole from Coco Beware from the WWF in the 1980s. Like Frankie should have been there too. So (laughs) I kind of get it, but you would have thought that they would have been so impressed because at the end of the first movie, they were actually very much impressed that she was going to tackle this Chinese trade. Right. Now she's back from it and you're offended by what she's wearing. Like the movie out of the gate 
is just, it feels so disconnected from the first movie. Right. They they do address it, though. And I like that I think this movie was actually careful as far as throwaway lines and explanations because she um, her mother criticizes what she's wearing to Hamish's event because that's the night he is being crowned a lord, I believe. Um, and Alice said, if this was good enough for the Duchess, it's good enough for Hamish. Right. Um, so they did throw that in there. And I mean, as ridiculous as Hamish is and the whole context that they've put this in, I like that it at least sets up the story with her mother and where they're going to take those characters. Um, I believe they were, before this bombed in the box office, they were actually going to make this into a trilogy as well. Um, And by the time the movie wraps up, you know, the relationship with her mother is improved. So I think that's where they may have gone with the third one. Um, So I can definitely see where they were planting some seeds here. Yeah, clearly after the movie flopped the way that it did, I think audiences knew that this... I I think a lot of people were very much disappointed with the first one, and actually what killed this movie was word of mouth. Mm. And that's sort of why the movie was a flop. But they had to have known that they weren't going to do the third one after this one was such a disappointment at the box office. They had to have, and that's clearly why they pulled the plug on it. I honestly don't remember. I mean, at the time, this was 2016. We were kind of in the middle of planning a wedding. So there was really nothing on my radar at that point. But I I really don't remember. There's there just so many things about this movie that are frustrating, just like in the first one. Like, for example, we see the butterfly, which was the caterpillar. By the way, this was Alan Rickman's last film. This one. I don't think he planned that, so I'm not going to fault him because I'm sure at the, you know, with his entire career laid out, I'm sure he wasn't going to be like, this is how I retire. I mean, he had no control over what happened in this being his last film, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, it it stinks that this is the one we were left with. We see the butterfly he leads Alice through the looking glass. And when she goes back to Wonderland and they're they're talking about the Hatter and they go, she, she goes, where is he? How about in the house shaped as a hat in plain sight? He went to McDonald's. Like, where, where did you, th- where do you think he's hiding out? I want to back up for a second. Though, okay. Because... That that doesn't bother me nearly as much as the looking glass itself. All right. Um, she has to, the, the caterpillar or butterfly rather, eventually leads her to the fireplace. And she's got to kind of like climb up on a chair and then onto the mantle and then go through the looking glass. That doesn't scream looking glass to me. Like that that's a mirror on top of a fireplace. It's, it's a fireplace decoration. Like to me, I think looking glass, I remember... There used to be a show on the Disney Channel, and it was a modern-day Alice in Wonderland. It was Adventures in Wonderland. And it was, I mean, it, 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 now you look back on it, it reeks of the 80s and 90s. But they modernized it by making it about a teenage girl, and she would have this floor-length mirror in her bed in her bedroom and she would just walk through it anytime she wanted to go to Wonderland. And she would, you know, it was like a half hour. Disney afternoon thing so she would have like an adventure each time and then when she had to you know be back to for dinner or to do her homework she'd just pop right back through the mirror yeah for those of you who don't know what we're talking about this was like one of those trying to be contemporary right modern spins where the white rabbit is on rollerblades and and um Tweedledee and Tweedledum they're dressed up literally they're dressed up to look like MC Hammer yeah um what do I think about when I see this? Robin Sparkles. <laughs> and let me explain to you why. For those of you who didn't watch How I Met Your Mother. Um, where have you been? N- number one, where have you been? Number two, Colby Smulders, who you would know from the Avengers series. Yeah. She plays Robin on the show. She's a news reporter in New York. But when she was growing up, she was a child actor and she was a child performer that sort of had this Tiffany 
image. Yes. And it was from the mid-90s. And when they watch the footage of her, they go, why does this look like the 80s? And she goes, the 80s didn't get to Canada until the 90s. Well, watching this, this ran from 1992 to 1995, but it looks like something that should have come out in the late 80s. Yeah, it looks like actually, I'm throwing it way back here, Zoobly Zoo, it reminds Mm -hmm. me of. Um, That was, I think that was on PBS. That was another big like afternoon show when I was a kid. I'm really dating myself here. Um, But I'll post the trailer for this Adventures in Wonderland show on our Facebook so that you can see what I'm talking about. Um, But like the characters, I mean, granted, they're, they're terrible looking in this 90s version of Alice, but I would have liked to see them do more of that with the, you know, actors in actual costumes and with face makeup on. It's like I was talking about uh, last week where they could have pulled off a really cool sight gag with Alan Rickman as the caterpillar for the sake of having him actually appear in the film instead of CGIing him. But anyway, that's what I was thinking of when I saw The Looking Glass. I was kind of disappointed that it wasn't a full length one. And I thought it was really stupid to have her just climb up on the fireplace and have to jump through. Yeah, I have also never seen a mirror above a fireplace. It's sort of an odd spot. But I do want to say one more thing about this show because you're right. It it was of that time where you had Zoobly Zoo, the Mm -hmm. elephant show, Yes, the Dumbo show. Circus. Yes. Oh my god. But these were all these were all in the 80s. Yeah. And then this came out in the 90s. The Chiodo brothers did the puppets for this. The Chiodo brothers made killer clowns from outer space. Oh my god. And now it all makes sense. A movie that I love and you hate. But that's why it looks like it's of the 80s. Right? But even the music. My mind is officially blown. Are you going to be able to continue this? Because in reality, we kind of have like another 40 minutes to go. Yeah. Or, or do you need do you need a moment? Yeah. We can pick this up next week if you want. No, let's keep skewering this movie. Okay, fine. Um, um, you go ahead. <laughs> well, she gets through the looking glass. That's another thing. And and maybe maybe they drew that from the book. I don't know. I've not read through the looking glass. So maybe that was something that was very specific in the way that Carol wrote it. And that's why they put it above the fireplace. But regardless, she pops through the mirror. She's in what looks like a reflection of the study that she was just in in Hamish's home. Right. But they don't really do anything to it. Like it's not upside down. It's not uh it's like not even backwards really. It's not like a perfect mirror image of what she just jumped through. So you kind of missed an opportunity to do something fun and funky with the set and like also let us know that we are back in Wonderland, Underland, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, we're back to calling it Underland again, which I don't understand. And you're right. Other than her walking through the mirror, there's very little immediately that tells you that she's gone to this place of whimsy. Right. Um, and then all of a sudden, like you said, the next thing we know, she's following the caterpillar. Or she falls. She she follows the butterfly. She falls and then lands, picks up the chronosphere, and then uh, she sees the Hatter's home. Right. It's just the whole thing is, is sort of very weird. Um, the Hatter's lisp is awful and you can't make out half of his dialogue at times yeah like let's not forget this is twice you've had johnny depp how how do you squander johnny depp this badly i don't know i mean he does dip in and out of the scottish accent again but i don't know where the lisp came from because that wasn't in the first movie it was there a little bit but but here's the thing he he's better in this movie though he was better in this movie than he was in the first one because he came in and out of the Scottish accent, but he would only go into it when he was getting angry about yes. something, when he was getting yeah. worked up. And honestly, his backstory makes a lot of sense. Um, yes and no. It definitely makes sense, but I feel like to do an entire movie with that little piece of information that we got from the first live-action remake was a reach. Yeah, but let's be real about something. Neither the first movie or this movie were ever about Alex. Or Alice, I should say. 
these were completely Johnny Depp vehicles. There's right. no doubt in my mind. Right. But I guess that's what I'm saying. Like, you want to make this, you know, Hatter-centric? I'm totally on board with that. But I'm saying the story that they drew out of the first one with the Jabberwocky killing his family. And now you find out that they weren't actually dead. I feel like that was such a reach. And, like, that's what you were able to get out of it. So- I'd rather know, like, I mean, yes, this is why he went mad. But, like... I don't know. I guess I would have preferred something different traumatic happen to him to turn him this way. I mean, I guess the idea is that he they died or at least he thought they died before he had a chance to make up with his father for leaving. And that's what drove him mad was that he never got that chance. I can kind of live with that. It's very much E.T. in that. He's slowly fading away. He's turning white because of his. Now he's he's found this this paper hat, and he's starting to believe that they're alive, and nobody believes him, and he's slipping into into this depression. So he's like wasting away. Yeah. It reminded me of E.T. Yeah, it definitely does. Um, we have Anne Hathaway again, and she is as bad in this movie as she was in the first movie. Yeah, and they, I mean, they definitely gave her more substance with her story, but, like, the airhead thing got even worse. Like, Mike Wazowski was better in this movie than she was <laughs> in, in the first one. Johnny Depp was better than he was in the first one. Mm. She regressed. I don't know how that's possible. Yeah, and she's, I mean, she's such a great actress. It's a shame. It really I is. I love Anne Hathaway. I think she's fantastic. Yeah. Which is why I was so excited for the first movie and why I was so disappointed by it and why we didn't even go see this one when it came out. No, and especially because we've seen her be a Disney princess before. Twice. In princess Diaries, yeah. And she she evolves into, you know, a queen who rules in those films. So, like, the fact that she wasn't able to, like, really nail the Disney princess thing was incredibly disappointing. And I maybe that's not what they were going for. I know that she was trying to pull different influences to make the character ditzy. But, like, I don't, we, we talked about it last week. Like, there was a difference between Amy Adams doing the spoof in Enchanted and that all worked and this just didn't. Granted, this is not a satire of anything, but... If you're going to be satirical, then you you have to kind of fully commit to it. Well, because Amy Adams knew when to pull back. Yeah. It doesn't seem like Anne Hathaway knew when to pull back in this movie at all. But again, I don't know that that's her fault. I think that might also come down to direction. Absolutely. You know what disappoints me more than anything else? When I lean over to somebody the first time I see a film within the first five or ten minutes, and I say something in jest so outrageous that I almost can't believe that it would happen, and then it happens. For example, The Village by M. Night Shyamalan. Yep. When that movie came out, I was with my buddy Paul. We're at the movies, and I lean over to him, and I say, wouldn't this be something if this movie took place in like Sunken Meadow State Park the whole time? Which, for those of you who aren't from the area... It's a state park. It's a wooded state park Mm. with baseball diamonds and a golf course, but a picnic area. Well, guess what happens an hour and a half later? The exact thing I said as a joke is exactly what happens. Yeah. I leaned over to you the first time we watched this movie and I said, wouldn't it be funny if they have to time travel and it's somehow maybe, you know, because we had George McFly in the first movie. Imagine if they got to take a time machine back to go save his parents. Well, guess what happened, folks? I was right. And you know what? The movie gets better if you play the power of love on your phone oh my God. every time she gets into that sphere. And he did. And did it make the movie better? I don't know that anything makes this movie better, but I like that we got to see the fate of George McFly in a time travel movie and that they actually did throw in a little nod to his character at the very end of this one. Yeah, this is heavy. Um, (laughs) 
The best part about this movie is Sasha Baron Cohen, even though he sounds a lot like Christoph Waltz. Yeah. Not a lot like, like it was such a ripoff of Christoph Waltz. I I wonder if that's what he was going for. I was going to say he does do an accent in almost every role that he's, I mean, obviously Borat, um, but in uh, Les Mis, he, he, I mean, obviously, okay, that's a bad example because that's France, but he always does some kind of, like, he really gets deep into the character. Um, I don't know why that was the choice for this one, though, because, yeah, you close your eyes and it's Christoph Waltz. But it kind of worked. It does. I actually like everything about the character and the way that he played it. Um, I I don't know where it necessarily fits in Wonderland. Like, that's where it pulls me out of it. But I love that they gave time a personification and a job. And that, you know, they put it in the context of, like, both literal and figurative time of he's actually keeping the time on the grand time clock but he's also monitoring people's time as in as in their life and he's actually deciding when their time is up and I I thought that that was a really cool element it made it a little dark um but I just thought it was a really interesting take on it yeah making him kind of this grim reaper presence Yeah. yeah yeah I liked it I liked him um the time puns it wasn't as bad as the ice puns from batman and robin but it kind (laughs) of got close in certain scenes but in others they worked like when they were trying to use it to teach a lesson of like what to do with your time and uh you know it kind of does come full circle at the end a little bit for me where where him and alice have their last scene and they're talking about um she always thought that time was a thief and she was basically looking at life as a race against time because she wants to do six impossible things before breakfast and she feels cheated because she lost time with her father. But her, the lesson is that time is actually a gift and how you have to be careful about how you use it. And I think that's a great message for this film. Um, other than that, though, yeah. And any phrase with the word time in it was used. Time on my hands. Uh, Time's on my side. Time, yeah, yeah, everything. I'm on time. You know, I I do think that um, it was a really smart choice for them to do what they did here because originally time was not a character in these original Alice books. But there was a throwaway line that the Hatter said about he had a quarrel with time. And they took that and they built a character out of it and made a good character out of it, I thought. Yeah. Um, The only thing that was a little derivative was when Alice gets to his castle is um, they do that and it amazes me because Burton didn't even direct this he produced it but they managed to get it in there it's that classic long shot of the girl walking into the castle a la Winona Ryder in Edward Scissorhands when she's when she goes to find him Mm -hmm. Uh, Nightmare Before Christmas in um Sally and uh Oogie? Was no, it? not Oogie's home. Sally and uh the the Dr. Frankenstein character oh, yeah, that yeah, built yeah. Sally. Right. Uh but they have that like long shot to show his whole laboratory and uh they did that like I was watching this one and I was like I've seen this before. The castle doesn't actually look like anything Burton really, but it's just that one shot and I was like, "Oh." But Burton doesn't have a style. Yes. Right. Um And you managed to Sneak it into a movie that you didn't direct. The sure. movie, you know, the movie does have bad dialogue. The time puns get bad, but like at one point, time asks one of his little metal minions a question, and he starts to answer it. And then time says, "You will speak to, uh, you will speak when you are spoken to." And even Alice says he was spoken to. Like even she called him out on it, and it didn't make a lot of sense. Um, and I know that. Sasha Baron Cohen wanted to make him kind of a manic character, but when your time 
and that's all that you do is make sure that time exists in the world and you're determining the time in which another human being spends on the earth, I don't really know that you can be that manic. I think you you have to be a very focused person. And in other times, he is so incredibly focused Mm -hmm. in this film that it's sort of jarring when he goes off on one of these tangents because it happens a few times where he's sort of like displaced from reality and then he comes back. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I, I felt that that was a bad character choice. Yeah, I mean, I like that they tried to give him these contradictions where like he's uber focused on keeping time and he takes that very seriously and otherwise he's kind of eccentric. But I think they kind of contradicted themselves as far as giving him that weird tick. Pun definitely not intended there. Thank you. Um, What I like that they did with it too is once Alice does acquire the chronosphere, um, she's she goes through time and what they did for the time travel was they kind of made it like an ocean but it's not just underneath her as she's sailing over it and I guess that's why they decided to do this piratey thing at the beginning and establish that she can sail and whatnot um but the waves are on all sides of her and I thought that that was kind of cool to treat time as an ocean because it does tie back to her being a ship captain and it kind of drives the point home that you can't control time like the ocean you you can't grab the ocean you can't hold it you can't control it in any way so I thought that that was kind of a nice touch um and the CGI was actually halfway decent in that in that yes in other times it was as bad as ever yeah but in that particular scene it was pretty good um let's talk about that whole sequence for yeah, a moment. Yeah. Why does the chronosphere have these predetermined destinations that just so conveniently help in pushing the story along? That to me was really, I felt that it weakened a plot that at times was already weak. I mean, let's not forget they've sent Alice back to risk the well being and the existence of the entire universe. So mm. that the Hatter doesn't die of depression. Right. I, I just, I, I understand you needed a device to move the film forward. But I just feel like that's an awfully dramatic step to take for one person. If Underland or Wonderland or whatever you want to call it was being destroyed, that's one thing. Mm. If you didn't want to lose that entire universe... That's one thing. But you're literally going to put... a, You're putting at risk the existence of everything. Why? I, I just... I don't buy that as, as a big enough reason to do this. Yeah, I mean... I definitely get what you're saying, but I guess it doesn't bother me that much. I mean, yes, as, as a plot device, it's ridiculous, but... I thought that in the first one and I guess that's why it doesn't bother me here because at least they tied it back to the first one because as soon as she gets to Underland Wonderland the first time I think it's the Tweedles that pull that scroll out and they're like you have to fight the Jabberwocky and she's like why and it's because it says so right here on this animated scroll that we have so everything is sort of predetermined and it's about fulfilling this destiny and I guess it does kind of work here in this context too, because we're talking about time. So fulfilling destiny does make sense here, but yeah, I don't like that. Everything is laid out on this scroll. It's just kind of weird. But again, that also might be something from the book that we're just not familiar with. The thing I hate most about this is the pull me chain inside the chronosphere. Number one, why does every item in this universe that needs to be used have its direct instructions on it eat me drink me pull me pull me that's sounding awfully dirty um what was that oh what was the song from batman and uh forever um thrill me kiss me kill me the u2 song oh Uh, after like as you were rambling that on that's that's the first thing i could think of was that soundtrack from 1995 i guess they tried to throw it back to Alice because now that's the thing by the time we get here 
I not only it's so far removed from Alice in Wonderland, the animation, but I feel like I'm in a totally different film altogether at yeah. this point. So I think they tried to tie it back to the traditional ones, but like now that doesn't fit the character that they've established here because she's supposed to be clever and she's supposed to be able to figure this stuff out. Yes, and it kind of dumbs her down, whereas she was being built up to be, as you said, a much brighter character. I mean, she's she sailed a ship from London to China, the first person to do it, and you need to tell her to pull the chain. And eventually she does figure it, figure it out. She says, oh, this is like a ship. So why couldn't you get that just by looking at it? And I feel like it was just an excuse to get a cheap laugh because when she pulls the oh, handle, God. you get the sound of a toilet flushing. Awful. Why? Awful. Why? Why? There's no plumbing there. There's no toilet to be flushed. So why do we get a toilet flushing sound when she pulls on the chain? I understand that back in the day, that's how you flushed a toilet. And I think this movie was... It was 1875, I think, was the year it was set in. But why? Why does that exist? It makes no sense. No, and it... It, it cheapens such it. Such a cheap laugh. Not even a laugh. I didn't laugh. I mean, maybe maybe for kids, but like... But, it, but it's such a subtle thing yeah. that you kind of have to be paying attention. In fact, the first time she pulled it, I thought, did I? No. No. And then it wasn't until the second time, and I looked over at you, and I said, did they actually? And you said, yes, yes, they did. Mm -hmm. I didn't even have to finish what I was saying. Yep. So, I don't know. I just thought that it was, I thought it was, it was just dumb. I don't, I don't find anything like that humorous. No. And I don't think a lot of people did. It's partially why this movie was a flop. But... Uh, whatever I, I gotta get past that because I could I could sit here for an hour and just keep saying it was it made no sense um this whole story that the queen's head expands yeah. uh. because she got angry that people were laughing at her at her coronation makes zero sense it makes no sense at all she bumps her head as a child. Her head swells a little bit. And because that happened one time, that causes your head to expand to the bobblehead that we know it as today. <laughs> no, that's called a concussion. Yeah. It's what's ended a lot of careers in professional sports. Yeah. That's not a plot device. That's no reason... That sh it's it's not a reason that should be used to explain why she looks the way she looks. Right. Because they had to justify why Burton's film made her look stupid. Exactly. It's kind of like the remakes of all the Halloweens. What makes Michael Myers so scary in those films is because he's just a cold-blooded killer with very little motivation. He's a psychopath. Once you start getting into this like tortured childhood and he's acting out because he couldn't handle the trauma, it kind of does take something away. Yeah, good point. And that's kind of what this was like for me. I mean, it's not like I'm so invested in the Queen of Hearts character where I feel like she's any less menacing or scary, but I just don't think we needed it. Like... I thought it was such a weird aesthetic to blow her head up like that in the first one. So I certainly didn't need it explained. Yeah. Um, I do, however, kind of like that they gave the backstory to the... I, I, I mean, I don't necessarily care one way or the other what that backstory is. But I like that they had that parallel, the Hatter's backstory and the way that they weave these the two together because it does actually affect present day right which in a weird way it does almost make this film more like a prequel because yeah. we are traveling through and in a way a weird way i wish they would have done that instead of having all the time travel nonsense i wish we would have seen alice's first trip into wonderland and found all of this out as we're walking through in present day the first time she goes there yeah um i don't hate the fact that 
um, you see this change in her after she bumps her head as a child because we clearly see how upset she gets when her sister lies about eating the tarts and she pins it on her. She's a very aggressive character to begin with, Mm. but it's done so in a very childish way. And childish in, in that she's not just stamping her feet, it's that she's a literal child. Right. But after bumping her head, it sort of sets her off, and now she becomes something else. I don't hate that, and I like that we see that she is sort of built up a little bit, but it's still weak nonetheless. And her mother, she's a keen detective, isn't she? Oh, my God. <laughs> Did you eat them? No, they're, she kicked them under my bed. Did you do that? No. She says she didn't, so it's your fault. <laughs> Wonderful. A wonderful detective. We've got to put her on Criminal Minds. She <laughs> CSI Wonderland. She's like Ice Tea or I- Ice Cube in uh, in what is it, Law and Order? Yes. <laughs> With just that clue. Did you do it? Yeah, basically. <laughs> like when you eat too much cherry darts. <laughs> yeah, it's basically it. I mean, it's just like really bad. Really, really bad. Yeah, I mean, I like that they established the backstory, like I said, between the sisters and why they don't get along and why she's so jealous. And it does, you did kind of need an explanation as to why the younger sister has become the queen. Because if you are going, you know, if if you're going for historical accuracy, the eldest sibling gets it by default. Yeah. So that I was all on board with. But what bothered me too, like you said... She she got a concussion and she's just sitting there going, my head swelling, my head swelling, my head swelling. Like there there should be more blood. Yeah, this is a Burton produced film. Yes, we should have seen a lot more stylized blood when the child fell. <laughs> well, I I don't think Disney <laughs> wanted that. It's one thing when he made Sleepy Hollow. But I don't think it's what. But you Excuse know, me. guess no. what? None of this is what Disney wanted. Disney That's didn't want to I'm lose saying. seventy You're million dollars. You're gonna take so many freaking liberties with Alice in Wonderland. You didn't just go completely off the rails. The thing with this movie is for for the things that it got right, it did twice as many things wrong. Whereas the last movie did nothing right. Here's, At least this one did a few things right. Here's my big revelation about this film stick with me here okay so as as they're giving us the backstory of the girls time comes in and he's trying to find alice not in present day he's trying to find her back in time it's present day time chasing alice down through the years um and what i actually really like what they did here is that he's literally falling apart because she took the chronosphere and he's dying but the way that they actually have like pieces falling off of him and his he's got a clock uh you know kind of like the iron man chest plate yeah uh and that's coming out and breaking down and he's got like this electric currents firing through him so it was actually kind of cool to see like i i actually really like he feels like he's from a different film i want to see more of him like he was actually really cool so anyway He's chasing Alice down and he stumbles upon the mad tea party, um, which they kind of delivered on. One of my big critiques in Tim Burton's remake was that you have this decrepit, you know, we see his decrepit windmill and the tea party's kind of falling apart. And it's not what you wanted to see, all the color and life breathed into that scene. So we do get that here. Um, I still think they could have done a touch more with it like with some crazy teacups and like actual like tea fountains but it worked I'll give it that but what I realized in this scene through all of the tea or the time puns this is where there were probably the most of them um at the end of it the Mad Hatter is trying to throw him off Alice's trail and he says that she was invited to tea but she I never said that she was coming so time punishes them by setting it a minute to tea time and they have to basically repeat themselves 
day in and day out. It's like Groundhog's Day where they're always going to be just before tea time, but they never actually have their tea. And I was like, oh, that's kind of clever. And we got a little context as to why this is the mad tea party and why they're celebrating it on birthday is because time's not moving and they're kind of trapped in this circle. And they never actually drink their tea. Exactly. And we get the explanation for that. And this was my big revelation is that what they tried to do with this prequel is make it like Wicked. Because if you know the story of Wicked, whether you've read the book or you've seen it on Broadway, they give an explanation for everything as how the Wicked Witch of the West descends into being evil when she was actually a good character, how Glinda is not as good as we think she is, how the Scarecrow became the scarecrow and why he doesn't have a brain why the tin man doesn't have a heart and why the lion doesn't have courage we get a foolproof explanation for each and every single one of those things and it all works and it all ties together with the wizard of oz that we know in the film and they didn't reach for storylines there was nothing and I mean, The Wizard of Oz is my favorite movie. Yes, my favorite movie is not a Disney movie. But I know it inside and out, back and forth. And there there was nothing that could be left to question. And I feel like that's what they try to do here. But so poorly. They are trying to provide explanation for things that you really can't because you are in Wonderland and nothing is supposed to make sense. And Wonderland was a world that Alice created in her head where everything is the opposite and everything is the way that she wants it to be. Right. So now you're trying to rationalize things that shouldn't be. Right, because it's made up. It, it was supposed to be irrational. That's what Alice wanted. Exactly. So you're trying to take something that was meant to be in disarray and make it literal. And it removes a lot of the charm of Wonderland. I also think a lot of this was to, let's explain where Tim screwed this up. Yeah, because he screwed the pooch big time. Yeah, um, and and that's I think a lot of it as well. Um, going back to some of the sloppy screenwriting, when she wakes up in that institution, the doctor says, "Oh, I think he, I think the exact words were it's female hysteria. There's no cure, but she'll be fixed in no time." Yeah. Wait, what? I mean, I think he sort of said it with evil intentions because I think he was just going to give her a bunch of medication that was going to, for all intents and purposes, make her a vegetable. But it just was... You you can't follow the line of there's no cure with she'll be fixed in no time. Yeah, and it's such a throwaway scene. Like when time finally hunts her down, she jumps back through the looking glass and it turns out like her actual body is now in the in the psych ward because they think that she's crazy. But I I think that what they were trying to do was put it in the context of the time of like them still, you know, way, way before women's lib. Um, they were still trying to put it in the context of, well, women aren't supposed to be sea captains and they're not supposed to you know, their places in the home. And I think that they were trying to reinforce that by yeah, having this put her... down of, of you know, it's, oh, it's women's hysteria and writing it off. Because even her mother was like, women are not ship captains. Yes, exactly. But it was just such a jarring place to put it, to bring it back to present day. And and then if if that's what you were going for, now you've contradicted yourself. Yeah, um, Takes you right out of it. The Queen's hideout is as bad as Dr. Evil's in Austin Powers. <laughs> but the difference was in Austin Powers, it was meant to be bad. Yeah. Subtlety was lost in this film. And and her her crew, because she doesn't have her, her card army anymore, she's got vegetables. There's no reason why. Like actual vegetables. They people. look like in Gremlins 2 when that one gremlin becomes like a living vegetable garden. Yeah. And they turn against her and let Alice and her friends out of their cells because she picks off of us and eats the pieces she takes. Yeah, and to that end, why couldn't you just chew your way? You've got two rabbits in there with you. You've got the white rabbit and you've got the March Hare. You're telling me they can't just chew their way through those bars? 
Yeah, because those are all made of vegetables as well. They they when they when they get there as well, they start running around this castle. They're like, "All right, we're going to split up." But they are they are running irrationally fast through this. And I don't know if that was filmmakers trying to speed it up to 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 speed up the actual search, mm. but there's no reason why they should be moving through this castle as quick as they are. It's very jarring. Yeah, especially because the way that they do the shot it almost looks like they're on like tiered floors and and the camera is like traveling up through the stories but you can see what's go- what's going on on each floor at the same time and it almost kind of i guess it was supposed to have like a noises off effect where one person's running in one door and out the other as they're trying to find the hatter's family in there but like it, it just doesn't work like it wasn't funny it wasn't um, you know, they weren't being chased yet by the Red Queen at that point. So there was really no reason yeah. that they were like just scattered and, and looking in each and every room. There's a line right around this point where that's actually at the end of the movie when um the queen is turned from stone back to human and she goes, why does this always happen to me? Do you time travel often? Is that your way of saying I've been foiled again? And then she goes, you know, um, why don't why doesn't anyone love me? Where have you been for the last two movies? Yeah, like we don't have time to get into that laundry list of why people don't love you. You're a tyrant, right? But she's had two lovers, so to speak. It was yeah, Crispin, Crispin Glover in the first one, and now she's supposedly with time, right? Um. In all, I thought the score was good, and and that was it was Danny Elfman again. Although at times I felt like we've heard this before. Like for example, when they go into that that Hamish party, yeah. I turned to you and I said, "What's this? What's this?" Because that's kind of what it sounded like. Yeah, I mean, there. That's the thing where you have to be careful is when you've had a body of work like Danny Elfman, it's so easy to identify one of his songs, just like you'd identify a John Williams song in Jurassic Park and Harry Potter and all of them you can tell. But like, you got to be really careful that you don't do something so similar to a previous body of work. I think this was actually, of the two of them, this was the better movie. I thought this was much better than Alice in Wonderland. Oddly enough, yeah. I don't, you know, I, I said before we're skewering it and we actually didn't bury the lead in the beginning of this episode. I I don't even know why we did this <laughs> because it wasn't really a remake and we stuck it out and, and we did the entire Alice universe to compare and contrast. But I mean... I, I guess we can pat ourselves in the back for sticking with this one, even though we didn't really want to. But yeah, after a couple of sittings of it, um, I don't think it was as bad as the first one. And weirdly enough, I feel like I would like this better if it wasn't in the Alice world, if it was a completely different film. Like if this was a wrinkle in time because it deals with time travel, I think I would actually like it more. Um, I think this was better than A Wrinkle in Time. Yeah, agreed. I, I agree. There there was enough here to ground this film where there were parts that I didn't like, but there were parts not where, I, you know, I think we kind of said this last week with Alice in Wonderland was, I see what you're doing, but I don't like it. I don't understand it. Here, I saw what they were doing. I appreciated some of it. And there were just a... There were a couple of bad misses, which is what stops this from being a good film. But it wasn't the train wreck that the last one was. And like, what's really interesting, too, is that like, I feel like this, this almost could take place in Oz. Because there's a whole bunch of, I mean, that's it. There's a lot more Oz books. And Dorothy travels back to Oz repeatedly. And I feel like some of the themes and some of the characters like you could place them in Oz and it would make sense and that's why I feel like if this wasn't associated with Alice I would like it better and I don't think that just because you you know you made this kind of hatter centric that it did necessarily have to be an Alice in Wonderland movie 
And, you know, this kind of, at times, this looks like Return to Neverland with some of the steampunky stuff that they did. Return to Oz, you mean? What did I say? Return to Neverland? Yeah. Return to Oz. Yeah. It, it kind of felt like it at times. Well, that's kind of where I got that from. Like, especially all the time stuff is you have the TikTok character. Right. I can't wait until we review Return to Oz because that is a Disney movie, believe it or not. Oh, I know. Um, and we'll get to that one eventually. But yeah, if we think that this was the better film, just wait until you hear, and it won't be for a long time, uh, what our review is going to be of A Wrinkle in Time when we eventually talk about that one. Yeah, we're going to have to like wait until we've completely run out of movies to do that one. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's going to be years. It, it's going to be a It'll long take us time. A while. There's like 600 titles in the Disney catalog. Yeah, so stick with us here. But we're interested in knowing what you guys have to think about this because actually the critics gave, which means nothing, but the critics gave the first Alice in Wonderland mixed to positive reviews. This film, they gave basically negative reviews. And I kind of understand why, but this film scored better amongst audiences than the last one so i don't think we're in the minority there but i'm interested in knowing what you all think about it we want to hear from you what do you guys think about alice through the looking glass get at us over on social media at monoreal radio on instagram twitter and facebook if you do follow us on social media, you will know that I was in Disney this past weekend, kind of. Uh, I was visiting a friend, so I got to go to Disney Springs, and that's going to have to be my little quick fix until our trip in November. But if you want to plan your trip, definitely hit me up at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.